this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, you probably know you need recurring revenue. But one of the questions I get a lot is, well, how do I make the switch? How do I change from a pay-for-service, bill-by-the-hour, bill-by-the-project kind of company and move it over into a recurring revenue model? And my next guest, Laura Stewart, did exactly that. She had an IT services business uh, called Guardian Angel, and she moved it from a kind of break-fix uh, business, by the building by the hour, to what they call managed services, which is where she built on a recurring revenue model. She called it the Angel Watch program, and she got about 90% of her customers to make the switch. And so what I want you to listen for in this interview is some of the unique tactics she used to get her clients over the hump, the way she kind of sold the value proposition of being on the Angel Watch recurring revenue program. She also shares an interesting insight about survivorship clauses. Be on the listen for that, because that can really benefit you when you go to sell your company. Uh, she also did this thing that I characterized as a bit of a relationship audit, which helped to sort of describe how much money her clients were spending with her and how much better off they would be on the Angel Watch program. She went on to describe the deal mechanics of the sale of her company, how she structured it in a, in a two-year deal, got herself a job as well on the outside after selling the business that she was pretty happy with. So lots of neat nuggets within this interview with Laura Stewart. Here's Laura. Laura Stewart, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. It's such a pleasure to be here. So tell me about Guardian Angel Computer Services. You know, when I first saw your company name, I immediately thought, okay, well, that probably is a company where, as marketers say, it does what it says on the tin. You help people with their computers. Is that right? Yeah. The tagline was watching over your computer and network needs. Got it. How did you get into that? It's very rare for a woman to be into that business, by the way. So you must have been in a minority among the kind of tech guys that I've, I've certainly interacted with. I was totally in the minority when I started the company. But my background is computer science, technical writing. I also have a master's in technical management. And I, I started the company because I'm a geek. You know, I prefer intellectual badass, but, you know, I'm a geek. And... People kept saying, Laura, we need help. We need help. We need help. I was doing this stuff in corporate life and the opportunity presented itself for me to leave corporate life and start my own company. And one of my friends who I helped on the side with their company one day said, you're our guardian angel. Hence the name. And what was that? Hence the name. That was back in 1994 was when I registered the company, December 7th, 1994. And I took my, and I was getting divorced at the time. And I took my first client in 1995 and never looked back. Fantastic. And I understand you sold the company in 2009. I want to get to that in a moment. But prior to actually 
selling, my understanding is that a few years before you met with a business valuator uh, who gave you some tips, maybe talk a little bit about, about that experience before we get to the actual sale itself. That to me was one of the most defining moments of my life as an entrepreneur because I had had a number of opportunities to sell my company from a year after I started the business on up and everybody always wanted me to go with the business. And I think they were really buying me as opposed to the company. And when I finally started to get serious about, well, what is this company worth? I was introduced to a business valuation guy and he sat down and was with us for days and days. It felt like it was probably, you know, maybe 10 hours total. And he took all of our books and, and, and really analyzed everything that was going on, John. And what he said was your company is in good shape now, but if you were to make some simple changes like having some of your staff do more customer-facing responsibility, creating recurring revenue models, distancing yourself from being known as the face of the company, you would increase the value of the company at a minimum twofold and potentially even further. And he also gave me the reality of what the number was for the business. And it was about a quarter of what I eventually got for my company when I sold it after taking his advice on making these changes to the business because it was more valuable now because it wasn't just me driving the business. It was contracts. It was recurring revenue models. It was having clients not feel that the business couldn't survive if I left. Such important lessons. I want to dig into that. So that was back in 2000, how many, like 2007-ish? Yeah, that was right around 2007. Okay, so so you meet with this this individual. What did they think uh, the business was worth at that time? Uh, you know, either as a multiple of EBITDA or or, or revenue. Like, what what, were the, what was it, what were they saying? Well, I know at the time we were booking about $450,000 a year. We didn't have a recurring model, and he said I could probably get a hundred to 200,000 for the company. Hmm. And I went, oh, wow, okay. That's not what I was thinking it would be worth. And he said, just some simple changes would increase the revenue. Because most of my revenue at that point was from selling a lot of stuff or from one-off services. So selling hardware and software. And he said, we have to throw those completely out of the mix when it comes to selling a technology services business, you can't guarantee that somebody will buy that equipment again. So we throw that out of the mix completely. And all of a sudden, my numbers were a lot smaller for the valuation of the company. So he was basically discounting all the, the, the hardware sales that you were getting a bit of a margin on. He was saying that's, that's one-off stuff that's not going to factor into your revenue, your, right. uh, your margin. We made maybe 5 to 10%, if that, off the sale of hardware. But where we made our money was services. But you couldn't guarantee that somebody was going to buy, you know, $300,000 worth of equipment that month or that year. So it wasn't value in selling a technology business. Now, in some other businesses, more retail-focused, that may be. But in the industry that I was in, it's been proven that you don't get that one-to-one value 
Got it. So tell us about some of the changes that you made to improve the value of your company between 2007 and the ultimate sale in 2009. The big thing I did was I started going to a recurring revenue model as my lead for the business, which meant getting people under contract for monthly fees for us to do things. And I had to bring in an investment in equipment to make it easier to do that for my business. And we started creating what we called our angel watch programs, which nowadays are things that every, pretty much any um, technology service provider is doing known as MSPs, managed service provider. But for me, it just meant formalizing informal agreements that I had. And then once we had set up our structure of our angel watch programs, switching our clients over, explaining the value and benefit to them. And I had 90% of my clients immediately agree to it because it was a better value for them. It's like a budget plan. If you live up north, the oil deliveries or in Florida here, uh, Florida Power and Light has a budget program for your air conditioning for your electric bill so that you don't have the highs and the lows. It was a way for us to give them a more structured price plan. But then one of the key things I did at the advice of some really great legal advisors I had based on the valuation guy was I changed our contracts to make sure that if I sold the company or was no longer in charge of the company, it, those contracts went with the new owners. A lot of people don't do that in their contracts. I'm sure you've seen this left and right with the work you're doing, the people you interview. And what happens is a company sells and people can get out of their contracts right away. This allowed anybody that bought my company to know that they had at least the length of those contracts to prove their worth to the existing clients that I had. Now, if somebody really wants out of a contract, you're going to let them out, but at least gave that feeling of security to whoever was buying my company. And I have to say that when the company bought me, um, 90% of the clients stayed because they had that opportunity. That's called a survivorship clause, I think, by lawyers. I'm not a lawyer, so talk to a lawyer. But uh, for folks who are interested in making that change in their contracts, it basically means the obligations of the contracts survive the change of ownership of the company. And uh, a good lawyer can paper that into your contracts. It's a little legal term. You have it in, uh, in small type, but it can be, as you well point out, a very valuable in in uh, in the sale, go back if you could, because I think a lot of people listening to this, Laura, will be like, uh, you know, I know I need to have recurring revenue, I know I need a subscription model, um, but I just don't know how to make you know pitch it to my customers so that they want to move to a new kind of recurring model. Um, it sounds like to me your big pitch was we're going to eliminate the highs and the lows. Uh, so one month you're not spending 10 times more than you are the next month. Was that the, the most compelling uh, angle you used or were there other things that you, you sort of made the pitch with? Oh, there were a few other things that I pitched in there. The biggest thing was I sat down with them and laid out how much they had spent. And this is kind of risky, right? Because sometimes when you put in front of a client how much money they've paid you, they get really scared because it's in their face how much, especially in a tech business where it can get very, very expensive. But I literally laid out what they had paid me over the years and for what. And then I said, with our new program and with the Angel Watch and Watch, we can do 
all of that money over here would have been eliminated for X price. And they started to see the value. And a lot of what we were doing was management around antivirus, some security stuff, patching, um, monitoring hardware failures and things like that. And I say, well, look, your hardware failed here. Your server went down and you were out of business for 24 hours till we could get new hardware in there. If you had this program, we would have known about that failure before it happened. And we could have arranged to have other equipment in place. Or we had other solutions in place that helped them like stay up and online. So it became a conversation about value to them to how to keep their business in business and up and running longer to provide for clients, showing them the cost of a down for them. How much was AngelWatch? What did you charge per month? It was per client. So the, the very entry level was $10 per seat, as we called it. And the higher levels went to about $300 per seat per computer device. Got it. And so when you were comparing apples to apples and cash spent now, not necessarily uh, trying to apply a price point to downtime, but if you were to say, look, Bob, you spent you know $12,000 with us last year. When you pitched Angel Watch, were you, were you making it clear that they were going to spend cash dollars for dollars less? Or were you having to factor in the cost of the downtime to kind of make Angel Watch look like a more... Uh, more attractive value proposition? I always factored in their cost of doing business and their cost of being down into the conversation because one of the belief structures that I had and I still have is that my responsibility is to make the client's business successful. Technology is not about putting a widget, a gadget, a computer in. It should help their business grow. But, but so, how did you estimate the cost of that downtime? I actually sat down with them as a process of doing business with my clients, understanding their costs of being down. We regularly did disaster and business continuity conversations. So every single time they had a down that stopped them from doing business, I would always ask them, how much did it cost you because you couldn't answer those phones, because you couldn't bring up the computers, because you couldn't get an order placed for a client? So I had all that data when I went to switch to the recurring revenue model. Got it. And so you made the change. That was the, would you say, Laura, that that was the biggest change you made between 2007 and actually ch selling the business in 2009? That was the biggest change in terms of the financial bump it gave to the company. So we had a couple of low blips initially because we put people on these plans and then there's an onboarding, right? When you're going to the recurring revenue, there's an onboarding process where I'm absorbing some of the costs. But then what happened after a couple of months of a client being on it, we started seeing increasing revenue spikes from that, which increased our valuation because they were actually buying more equipment because we were noticing problems before problems shut them down. And they had more faith and value in us now that we were looking out for them. So they planned bigger projects. And then, John, the other big part that I did during those couple of years was changing how I engaged in the business and giving more responsibility to some of my other staff to do some of those initial conversations with clients and not being the first person to pick up the phone and answer 
all of the questions. I wanted them to get that if I wasn't there, there were people that could answer the questions. I think people listening to this will kind of know intuitively, like, yeah, I've got to deep, you know, get me out of the equation and, and remove myself personally from the day to day. But Laura, what did you do specifically uh, beyond just kind of intellectually knowing that you had to be less important to the company? Can you give us some very tactical, specific examples of things that you did over that two years to, to make your business sort of less dependent on you personally? A big one I did was since tech businesses, you know, people pay by the hour to get a consultant to come in and do stuff. My rate was double what anybody else in my office was. So if you wanted me to come out, it was going to cost you more. So it made people think twice about just asking me to do something. Got it. So would you, do you have anyone else other than just Laura that could do this work? Because I don't want to spend, you know, twice as much for Laura to do what other people could do. Is that, that was the basic, the pitch. Th that was it. And then I also took myself out of the engineering mix because so, I, I have with my computer science degree and I, I was a geek that taught geeks. So I had master level instructor certifications for Microsoft and Novell. So I taught geeks to be geekier. Okay. <laughs> and what I did was I literally booked everybody else before me so that people were used to other engineers being out there. And I sat back and I worked on training some of my staff to do things the Laura way so that they knew if somebody else went, they would be, they'd have just as good an engineer out with them. So, what was your revenue at in 2009 when you decided to sell? Uh, around the million mark. And what proportion of that was coming from the Angel Watch program? Over 60%, probably closer to 70%. Okay, so you've got a million dollars in revenue, 70% of which are on these Angel Watch contracts. What was the trigger that made you want to sell? <laughs> Oh, that's always a fun question. Anytime anybody asks me that one, the the trigger actually started several years before, but I ignored it until the two by four hit me. And I was living in Florida at our second location because my dad's Parkinson's had escalated and I needed to be closer to him. And I had a 20% partner that I had brought on with the plan that he would eventually take over. And we were in a financial crunch since I had moved down to Florida, which I had never, ever been in before. And my financial guy said, you won't be able to take a paycheck. We won't meet payroll the next pay period. And I'm like, why? And he said, you're not getting the money in. So I started looking at all the cash flows and I'm looking at the accounts receivable. And we had close to $200,000 in back AR which I had never had ever. My clients always paid me on time. All the billing went out on time. There was a whole bunch of billing that hadn't gone out. And I said, this is crazy. So I called my 20% my partner and I said, hey, what's going on? And, and Laura, he, just to be clear, the 20% partner was responsible for AR. Is that why? Yeah, he was supposed to be, you know, making sure everything got done on a day-to-day -day basis up in Connecticut because he eventually wanted to take over. And maybe I hadn't set the expectations clear enough, but I believed he was taking care of these things like he said he would. And I said, look, um, you may not, we may not be able to take a check unless we 
do these things. And he said, I'm not going to do anything unless you change my contract. And it just hit me in the gut. And I went, wait a minute. Now, my initial reaction was I should have just um, fired him then and there because the contracts, I could have bought him out, but I didn't. What I did was I got on the phone and started calling my clients who owed us money. And within um, less than a week, I had 60% of the outstanding AR in. What, what was it that your partner wanted changed in his contract? He didn't like that um, I could buy him out for his cost of being in the business. He didn't like that there were no, that I had final say on things. He didn't like that he was a 20% partner. Basically, he just decided that he didn't like the contract he had signed. And do you think he was using, he was intentionally being negligent with accounts receivable to put you in a compromised negotiation position? I can't say that for sure. I know what my gut feelings are, which is why I said, here's my options to build this business and go to the next level with it. It would require me to change my staff in Connecticut and fly back and forth. And I, the thought of doing that, John, my whole body shut down. I mean, I wanted to throw up at the thought of it. And now I've rebuilt my business multiple times. There was one day I literally got rid of my staff, all of my engineering staff, everybody cleaned house because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I, I realized I had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of contracts that needed to be fulfilled, but I cleared house. And I'm going, what do I need to do? I cried on the floor of my office and a number of you entrepreneurs listening probably know what that's like. And after about 10 minutes, I said, okay, enough of that. What do I need to do? And I've done it before, but this time I couldn't. And I knew the fact that I had such a physical um, feeling of, I don't want to do this anymore, that it was time to sell. And I sold the company six weeks later. So you, you let's just be clear, um, you picked up the phone, collected the receivables, got righted the ship, got cash flow coming back into the company. What did you end up doing with that 20% partner? He got his 20% after the company sold, and that was it. He offered to buy out the company. We had several conversations about different things, and I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere with him. He believed he was right in everything that he was saying. Saw nothing wrong with the way he was acting and his behavior. And I went, you know what? This is not the right person I want to be in business with, and this is not the right person I want leading the company that I built. If you had it to do over again, uh, what would you do differently when vetting a potential partner like that. So, so many of us, uh, you know, want to put the, the business into the hands of other people for the reasons you've stated already. We try to recruit, you know, the second in command or a shareholder or a partner. Uh, these stories though of partnerships dissolving are not, um, not that uncommon, unfortunately. So, I mean, you know, hindsight being what it, what it is, what, what would you do differently in recruiting this person? I believe I did everything right in recruiting them because I had them vetted every which way from Sunday. But what I realized, what I needed to do was in myself. I didn't want a partner. I just wanted a manager that could manage things for me. And I didn't realize that. I kept thinking a partner was going to save me and, and help me. So by giving them equity in my company, that it would make things better. 
because I wasn't going to be on my own. I would have, in hindsight, I would have just built up a better board of mentors or advisors that I could go to to ask a bunch of questions about. Sort of like the movie The Intern, what ends up happening for her in that movie, rather than giving somebody a piece of my company. I've had multiple partners. None of them worked out. The reason they didn't work out was because that wasn't the right thing for me. I wasn't willing to let go because I was afraid of what would happen. And then I ended up getting proved that way each time I kept letting go, but I didn't necessarily set the right expectations and clarity for what that partner's role and responsibilities would be. They kept thinking it was going to be a lot more than it was, but they couldn't deliver. So such an important point. You know, I think a lot of the entrepreneurs in particular, the younger first time entrepreneurs I speak with, uh, their first knee jerk reaction is, well, I need a partner. Uh, you know, I need to recruit someone. So I need to share some equity. And, and I think in part it's because they, they want someone to share in the journey with and, and what they realized, like, I think you, you have shared is that eventually, you know, there is a difference between hiring a manager and, and, and having a partner. And, and, and it's a big, obviously difference. Talk about, uh, the 2009. So, so you have this triggering event, this cash crunch, you write the ship, you mentioned you sold the business six weeks later, maybe take us from, from this triggering crisis to, you know, the actual closing. How did you go about uh, putting the business on the market? Did you hire a, you know, a broker? What was that like? Well, I had the valuation. And I touched base with... This was the valuation from 2007 saying it was... Right. Yes. And I I touched base with the gentleman who's no longer doing business valuations in the tech world uh, about the changes. He looked at everything and he gave me the new number that he felt the business would be worth. I was so angry when all this stuff was going down after I righted the ship and figured out what we needed to do and got all the invoicing out and had conversations with my partner, I said, okay, I'm going to admit it, John. I literally prayed and I'm like, I just tell me what I need to do was one of the things I said, give me a sign, let me know. And a friend of mine called up who had always talked, we had talked about become merging our two companies together. And I I was just venting at what happened. And he goes, I'll buy it. And and I laughed. I'm like, really? Seriously, you want to buy my company? And he goes, yeah, really seriously, I want to buy your company. So we went down the road of him. He's bought a number of other companies. Of him looking at the finances, talking to me, looking at the different contracts much deeper than he had when we've had conversations before. I mentioned to another business mentor I had that I decided to put the company on the market. The guy, my 20% partner, um, I said, look, I'm going to sell the company. And he said, I'd like to put um, a bid in on it. So I, he gave me one about a week later. And all of a sudden I had all this interest because, very quiet interest, by the way, because the first time I had somebody who seriously wanted to buy my business, my employees told some of my biggest clients that the business was for sale and negotiations were going on and they left. So I learned I needed to do this a lot quieter than I had. So the gentleman ended up buying my company. He put together a package proposal. We had him look through all the books. And once I decided on the offer that I felt was the best one, 
I said, okay, and I signed the contracts. It didn't require my 20% partner to sign the contract because he didn't have majority share. So I signed the contracts and then told him that this is what was going to happen. I actually flew up to Connecticut, met with the staff individually outside of the office and told them what was going on and that the company had been sold. Talk to us about the offers and you were comparing the one from your friend and the one from your, your 20% partner. Uh, what was the, what was the, the offer or the details of the offer from the friend? You know, what was, what were the, what was he willing to pay for the business? Uh, what were the terms, that kind of stuff? So the one, the offer I ended up taking was not a cash upfront offer. It was over the course of two years, he would pay me monthly over two years, but he was offering me a position for a year to help transition the clients, which was important to me to make sure my clients were taken care of because I had built a relationship up after 15 years. And I knew that he was good for the money because I had him open his books to me so that I could see what his business was doing. And we arranged for collateral to be put down to make sure that no matter what happened to his business, I would still get paid because that's also important. The, um, one of the other offers I got was a cash offer, but it was 75% of the longer term offer that I was getting from my friend and he was paying interest as well. He being your friend. Yeah, my fr the guy who ended up buying my company, um, I, I was getting paid interest. I was going to have um, a year-long contract with medical, which was very nice. So it would give me time to transition. The cash offer I had gotten was 75% less of that. They also didn't want my Florida clients, which would have meant, what do I do with my Florida clients? They only wanted the Connecticut business. Okay. So you had this one contract that was, you were, you were being offered 75% of in cash versus this, this offer that was over a two-year period. I assume you, in the, in the latter example, the two-year contract, you agreed on a price the business is worth. Yes. Okay. And, and so what was that in terms of, you, we, you know, you can share like a multiple of EBITDA or like, what was the roughly what, what were, what were they offering to pay in a two, over a two year period? Four to six times EBITDA. Four to six times EBITDA. Okay. And I, and I could be wrong on that because I'm trying to visually remember my numbers back then. And I used to know this stuff cold. It's amazing what happens as you get older. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you agree to a price of four to six times EBITDA, um, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization for those playing along at home. Um, uh, and I forgot depreciation, actually. Um, Which are critical numbers, right, John? I mean, if you're running your business and you're ever thinking of selling, you need to know those numbers cold. And I did at the time. Got it. And so what, what you're being offered is four to six times uh, over a two-year period. Um, the two-year period... You also got an interest rate on that amount of money. What was the what was the the interest rate? I really don't remember. I know it was along the uh, going lines of interest at the time. I want to say it was somewhere between two and five percent, somewhere around there. 
can't quite remember. And I, I do apologize for that, John. No, that's fine. So you've got this interest rate, you've got this kind of monthly payment that's coming in, which which represents you know, one twenty-fourth of the value I'm assuming that you guys agreed on. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, that's helpful. And then the 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 job that you had that was were you guaranteed that job? Like if he fired you, did you get two weeks' notice or would you get the entire year worth of Yeah, I was under contract for the year. I got paid for that year. Got it. Got it. And I actually stayed a little bit longer. Got it. Okay. So, and, and maybe talk a little bit about the collateral, because that's interesting for folks uh, agreeing to one of these deals where there's little or no cash up front, and you're, you're sort of being paid over time. Uh, the downside, of course, a deal like that is if the, the buyer reneges on their promise and, and doesn't honor what they say, uh, you can be left in some cases, you know, owning your business back, but in a much diminished state. What was the collateral that, uh, that he gave you to guarantee those payments? It was not a piece of the business. It was outside the business. Got it. So it was something that you felt was certainly worth what, obviously what you were standing to gain. Yes, because if they're putting it up against their business and then for some reason their business tanks, having collateral against their business doesn't help me. Sure. Sure. So it was outside of their business. It was outside of, of their business. And how did you structure this legally? Did, did you have a lawyer that you're working with? Or I, I don't do anything without smarter minds than my own. <laughs> you know, there's a reason why there are really great business lawyers and CPAs that specialize this and business valuation experts. They live it and breathe it every day. Was your friend in the IT services business? Like yeah, and in, his business was 10 times the size of mine. I see. So, so he knew the business, uh, and did he adopt uh, the guardian angel name, the angel watch program? Were those things that he kept? He absorbed it and transitioned it over to his company name. Got it. And so, two years on, was I'm assuming that this worked out? You were paid what you were promised. I was paid what I was promised on time, and he actually ended up selling the company <laughs> again. <laughs> And, and made a profit from where he had built it up. And when you say he sold the company, did he sell your division that he bought from you or did yeah. he sell his entire company? Nope. He sold uh, my division that he had bought and sold it to another company who is still doing really well with it. Interesting. Interesting. And do you have any sense of, of the return on investment he made in, in, in All he was it? willing to tell me was he made his money back and more. Fantastic. So it worked out well for him. Talk, talk a little bit maybe about uh, about the cash offer. Uh, the cash offer, I'm assuming, was coming from your 20% partner? Yes, it was. And it didn't include Florida. And I didn't have a gut feel that my clients would be well protected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was like selling my baby, right? I have this idea for a book that I had talked about writing for a while. I read an article for a magazine called Selling Your Baby, The Seven Questions to Ask Before You Sell Your Company. It's in terms of, you know, the stuff you do, building, you know, your book, creating a business that can thrive without you. It, it, it's very much that same idea. So for me, it wasn't just about selling guardian angel computer services. 
right? This was something that meant something to me. And the process by which I finally was able to sell the company made me realize I was too emotionally invested in everything. And that there's a whole different set of questions to ask as an entrepreneur when you start your business to get yourself ready to sell your company. And, and when I was looking at the offer from my 20% partner, I realized that Yes, the other offer was much better, but I was also weighting some of it of my name was still there. I had a reputation where I used to live and in the community and in the tech world because we were regularly profiled inside top trade magazines for the way we were doing business. And he was going to keep the name and keep that going. And I was concerned about that. So I think even if he had given an equivalent offer, I would have gone in the other direction. Hmm. Interesting. What would you do differently, Laura, if you had it to do over again? The whole thing, like the whole starting of Guardian Angel Computer Services or the selling? No, I'm thinking specifically of the selling itself. That six-week period between the cash flow crunch and actually you know, consummating the deal. If you had, that to, if you had a kind of mulligan on that and you had a do-over, what would you do differently? Hmm. I, you know, I'm a, a person who lives in the now a lot, but looking back at that, I would have checked out a couple of other offers that were out there. Selling it to the guy I sold it with, to me, was still the best right decision. But if I had been willing to go back and forth, even for four months, to write the ship physically up there and build up some some more clients and get some more contracts because we did lose some inroads in the time that I was gone. Um, I think that I would have gotten even more money for my company. Interesting. And so you would have maybe cast the net wider and, and sought some, maybe a couple of other offers. But I would have waited a few months and actually just gone up there and righted the ship a little more. But I was literally so fried by that point. And what I didn't realize was when I moved down to Florida to help out with my dad and my mom, that I really was vacating the ship. I literally vacated the head office of my business. What, what advice would you have for another entrepreneur who is trying to figure out when the right time to sell? Um, in your case, you had this sort of triggering event, lots of external circumstances with, with your mom and dad's health. Um, I, I, you know, I think I have a slight bias in, in talking to other entrepreneurs who tend to, um, who tend to, to keep their business for longer than perhaps uh, they should. Or, or when I interview people, sometimes they say, oh, I wish I'd done it sooner. I wonder what advice you would have for other entrepreneurs considering kind of when the right time to get out is. Well, if I had sold it six months before, it would have been worth more than it was, right? Because that's when I started to vacate. And that's when the client billings started going down. That's when some people didn't renew contracts. Okay. And my gut was it was time to move on for me. But I kept thinking selling was failing. That the only way I could be deemed successful was if I built the business up even more and more and more, a million wasn't big enough. It needed to be bigger than that. It needed to be bigger than that. I needed to have more clients. And, and I 
selling was failing. And that was just, for whatever reason, that was a perception I had in my head. So my advice to other entrepreneurs would be, if you are having the thought that it's time to sell, or you're even entering in those conversations, you really need to sit down with a good business advisor and understand what that means and why you are thinking that. Good advice. Tell us what you're doing now. Well, ever since I sold, I, I became an international best-selling author. I have a book out called What Would a Wise Woman Do? Questions to Ask Along the Way. And it's all about the power of questions to change your life. What if you ask questions to get the answers that you need, not just the answers you want? How could your business change? How could your life change? What would change for you? And I do strategy work, business strategy work with clients who are thinking about selling, wanting to grow their business, not sure what they want to do next, looking to leave corporate life. I love working with clients like that. And I have um, a broadcast radio show called It's All About the Questions, which I hope one day you will be on. Hmm. Well, that sounds great. What would a wise woman do? Available everywhere on uh, the places you buy books. Yeah. And today, um, you know, National Book Day is arising in the world. And to me, books are what everything is all about. You, If you can't get to the right person, you can probably get to the right book or the right podcast, the right radio show to give you the knowledge that you need. So yeah, my book is available wherever books are sold. It's uh, three years since I wrote it. It's still an international bestseller. Laura Stewart, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.